to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry, and every week I talk to interesting people in lively conversations about work, plus community, plus creativity. Having subscribers helps us out a lot, so please go to www.working9tothrive.com using the number nine and subscribe. This week on 9 to Thrive is a review review where I talk a little bit about the guests that I had on and the things that they talked about and the ways that they were similar or different. And then also a book review. And then I go through a little bit, talk about my tabs, which is a way to tell where my brain is at at any given time. Where I'm actually at is in Italy. I've been writing a book on nonprofit management, staying in Florence, Italy, which has been delightful. And it is a little different from the usual soundscape that I'm in, so I'm taking some, uh, trying trying to do some ways to soften any echoes and any extra sounds. So it's very early in the morning, and I'm under a blanket. My first guest this month was John Bechtold, an amazing theater producer and teacher. He runs the theater department at Amherst High School. And he also runs a summer program at Deerfield Academy called DASAC. And the kind of theater that he is personally invested in, he, he teaches all kinds of theater, but the kind that he really nurtures and feeds him is this thing called immersive theater. And if you get a chance to do this, you should. It's as if the play is being done just for you. It isn't sitting in a seat and looking in front of you at a stage. You're up and in the actual action. Actors talk directly to you. It's really astonishing. It's really captivating and very uh, labor intensive. You have to make sure that the audience is going to be where it needs to be. You have to make sure that everyone's going to be safe. And uh, the outcome is this wildly sort of immersive well it is it's an immersive experience but so much fun it's it's a little hard to talk about because it's all about experience which I found really interesting when we talked about it I asked him a bit about documentation and in a way it's ideally suited to video because it's such an astonishing thing to be a part of except it, if you do video it, it's missing its major piece, which is the way that it affects each person. So that's something that John actually, although he's he's a he's good at documenting for assessment purposes, he doesn't document via video, even though that might be a way to market the the productions. He does he shies away from that because as you made that other piece that that visual passive piece, you undercut the actual experience. It's very, very interesting. It's, um, it's, uh, it's a whole different way of looking at theater. You get to be in it. John also puts on a production schedule at Amherst High School that is so ambitious, I couldn't get over it. The trust that it takes, the idea that you could put on Chekhov with high schoolers. I, I had never, never experienced a theater, you know, actually any teachers trusting 
you know, my 16 year old self to be able to pull that off. And, um, and then also fostering, you know, in both places, both, both programs, student directors, student creators. We talked a bit about, you know, the time crunch, getting everything done. But one of the things that I loved is the way that John builds in the necessity for play, at least into his regular life, but into the summertime, especially. So the DASAC program had a component where the people that run it, all the counselors, because it's a day camp, they specifically have a framework where they can do their own play in the evenings. And I think it's also very telling that the word for theater is, and and a lot of the arts is play and building that play in for adults, building that time to play, building that relaxing communal effort of play is a recurring theme on the podcast and certainly a recurring theme for my three guests this month. And it is something that they all talk about. Suddenly their voices change from logistics and and work to delight and joy. And it's a wonderful thing to see. And it's a, a reminder, I think, to ask yourself, especially if you're a little dissatisfied with your life, especially if there's a moment where you wonder, is this it? Could I be doing other things? I think one of the answers is, are you, or one of the questions is, are you making the time to play and are you playing enough? My second guest was Anya Gallagher, a very funny woman um, who also I met at a an event called Funny Women. And I was interested to know that although she is a professional comedian, her first, her her training, her academic training was as a an occupational therapist. There was a whole health aspect to this, to laughter and to connection that I hadn't been aware of when I met her as part of that, the comedy area of her life. And that she's integrated, like John, she's integrated these loves into a kind of whole. I often think of it like a Venn diagram, getting getting those pieces to overlap a little bit more. So one of the things she's done is start from a place of her values. Like Simon Sinek says, she starts with why. And the why for her is social inclusion and creating a space for different people, people unexpected to laugh and to create laughter. Her day job is a science foundation initiative called Bright Club where she goes and works, partners with colleges and and various academics and uses stand-up comedy, uses humor, uses the act of standing up and talking about the research that they do. This is brilliant because all of us can think of about a hundred things that probably we should know about. The one that comes to mind right off the bat is climate catastrophe, we should know about that. And yet it's so big and so depressing 
and filled with jargon and filled with, I mean, even, even the, I once read a really interesting article about the words climate change. It was by a, it was by a marketer and they were incensed that the communication that comes out of well-meaning academics and scientists is so poor at connecting with average everyday people. And he contrasted it to this thing that happened in the 70s, which was an awareness of pollution. Uh, If you go onto YouTube, you can look up a classic ad. It's kind of an ad council ad, so it's not really an advertisement that's backed up by a for-profit organization, but it was sort of a, a public awareness ad. And it showed pollution growing in the cities and people dumping trash out of their windows. And then it had an, uh, an American Indian, a Native American on a horse with a single tear coming down his face because the implication was that he, it used to be so beautiful and we, had, we were ruining it with pollution. That was an unbelievably effective ad. And the talk about pollution was incredibly effective. People started to address it, started to vote for initiatives to lower pollution, started to do things about it. At least where I live, they stopped throwing things out of the window, although I've lived in other places where they still did it. And that ability to communicate changed because the concept of climate change or global warming, those are terrible concepts of communicating. Regular people who can't take the time to be experts at climate aren't informed by those phrases. In fact, they use words that are associated with other things. And yeah, sure, it's very precise. And that's great. And for some people, precision protects them. Precision keeps them in a place where they can have contempt for other people. Jargon keeps people in a place where they can have contempt for other people. But I think the I think that the cost has been very high because if we were able to very clearly talk about climate catastrophe, climate disaster, frankly, let's just go back to pollution. That is a concept that is understandable and actionable. And well-meaning people who are good at what they do but don't have to be good at an academic level uh, to understand the science of what's happening to the weather would be in a much stronger position. It would be much friendlier to talk to them in a way that was understandable. And it's interesting how often nobody knows how to do this. So Anya is in a particularly interesting space because that is her work. Her work is to bring those things together, those disciplines together. And she does it in this three-way system. The first is comedy and comedians working with academics in order to get them comfortable speaking in such a way that an audience can hear and enjoy and understand and take it in. So the three parts are the comedians who mentor, who instruct like her, the academics who sign up 
and need to be able to communicate what they do or want to communicate what they do. But then also the importance of the audience to hear what these researchers are working on and then to be able to understand and share a laugh and the community building that she does through this, I thought was beautiful. It was very, very interesting. And then we talked a bit about it is a science foundation and governmental initiative. So it's important to measure the effect that this program has. And that was such an interesting piece to it because it brings that research back in, in again, a way that might conceivably be a bit troublesome because the benefit is not necessarily clear. And yet doing it has a social benefit. I think everyone could agree that bringing groups together for better communication, particularly over science, is only a win-win. When you look at the ability that charlatans have to manipulate science, when you look at Andrew Wakefield, the guy that faked everything about vaccinations and then all of it had to be retracted by the journal, the medical journal that he was published in. And in the meantime, he's created a massive public health crisis, putting children at risk. It's it's a terrible, terrible outcome based on well-meaning people who got fearful. And then when scientists and doctors were trying to respond they had a very difficult time reaching these fearful people. And there's an old phrase that I love, which is, a lie has time to go around the world before the truth has time to put its boots on. And the difficulty that academics and scientists seem to have in effectively communicating to people outside of their field can create this kind of public health crisis. And to learn skills, to be able to build community is something absolutely necessary. Oh, it got off a little track, which is because it's also run by a science initiative, the measurement of the program has to happen. But then it runs into some of the problems. Again, it runs into the problems that pursuing science can have, which is how do you define success? How do you define success in such a way that data can be collected? And does the data that you collected actually reflect the success of something? And that's very, very interesting in these kind of soft science ways where, you know, we talked a little bit about this. You can measure audience attendance, but can you measure audience engagement? If you have 500 people, is that a better indication of the success of a program than 100 people who are completely engaged and have learned a lot and walk away from some experience, you know, different. So having learned about some aspect of somebody's research, walk away and act upon it. How would you know? What do you do about the nature of time? A lot of times, human beings, there's a marketing uh, truism that a human being has to hear something six times before it really makes sense. And there is a neurological aspect that's similar to this, which says that people can only really learn if the new information taps into something 
that is already familiar. A good example is that a kid may have real difficulty on an SAT test, not because of the actual math involved or understanding the text that's involved, but for example, if they were given a math problem involving cooking, but they were homeless and never walked into a kitchen in their lives, they have a much harder time answering those questions, if indeed they can do it at all, because they have so little familiarity with the premise. So one of the things that Bright Club is incredibly valuable for is establishing a premise. But then that's very difficult to measure. So another thing I talked about with Anya was the art part of comedy. And again, why, why do it? Do you do it for entertainment? Do you do it for reflected love from an audience? Do you do it because it is an art that you practice? And if it is an art that you practice, which is what Anya considers it, then it's imperative as an artist to pause, reflect inwardly, look at what you've been doing and sort of celebrate it. Take some time, not just to grind, 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 but to take some time and assess what's working, what's not, what is fulfilling to you, what's not. She mentioned that there's a lonely piece to it. It can be a little isolating and how necessary for that, that it also is to take that time and understand for yourself where you are and to celebrate the things that you've done and to appreciate the things that you've done. Next up, I talked to Elaine Carroll, an environmental engineer who manages some of the rainfall that happens in Dublin and that a lot of her job is to create systems and to change systems to keep the water open and to make sure that the quality doesn't get affected because once the quality of the water is made bad, then it has to be made good again. So trying to trying to make it so that the built environment doesn't negatively affect the quality of the water once it falls. And she became an engineer. She said most people know somebody, they're related to somebody who's an engineer, but for her, it was a... A school counselor who suggested it and she tried it and she loves it and it was sort of a surprise to her. The parts that she really loves are include things like the collaborative aspect of it and the interactive aspect and the sort of solutions and how well it works for the way that her brain is wired. She was part of an initiative for getting girls into engineering and Certainly for her program, it, it worked very nicely. It was, she's part of a cohort that was very supportive. And she loves how to puzzle things out. And she loves the opportunity to, as she said, ask stupid questions. Not just what's happening, but why is it done this way? And if the answer is we've always done it this way, then why... Why stop there? What could we do better? What, how could we do this better? And that a lot of what she loves to do is figure out ways to bypass inertia. She said that 
a lot of people consider government, local government work to be almost like retirement and not innovative, but she's found it to be a real place in need of innovation and therefore the perfect place to start innovating. This was really interesting because I've been reading a lot lately about finding purpose in your work and the two-sided nature of that. Most, 80% of people worldwide are miserable at their jobs. They hate their jobs. They would leave their jobs if they could. And there are two parts to that relationship. One is undoubtedly the quality of the workplace that they're in, the quality of the management of the workplace that they're in. But the second part of that relationship is a mindset for workers, which is regardless of the way that management is set up, what about trying to bring innovation in? What about just changing how you approach work to be one of an innovative mindset? Maybe your workplace won't appreciate you. Maybe you'll get, you know, uh, there's a Japanese phrase that says the nail that sticks up is hammered down. But I think the important thing is not to hammer yourself down. Enough, enough nails stick up and just resist the hammer. So in this particular case, it was about here's, here's a kind of work, this community work to make policies and document and innovate for rainwater integrity. And that's, that's a place to start and that creative solutions are there and can be, can be taken out of there and then can be passed on to other municipalities and that suddenly you can have this virtuous circle of people making choices that make the water cleaner, that make the management better, that that end up being improvement in progress. And so she's finding that creativity is something built into her job. It's how you view things, how you think of things, and how you approach things. And the, the engineering is satisfying because of the way that it's, it's in an in-your-head kind of creativity. For physical creativity for Elaine, she's part of a beautifully named drama troupe called No Drama Theater. What she loved was the mission statement on the website, and she felt like No Drama had a great ethos. There are no auditions. Everyone is welcome. They have monologue nights, and it's not everything all the time at the same time. There are periodic shindigs. It's inclusive and supportive and invites people to get active and involved, invites them to play. And what she found was that it was a nice balance to the creativity of engineering, but that's a sort of mind-based inner creativity. No drama allows a an a body embodied creativity. And so that's what she loves about that, that it's very much movement. It's very much being very centered in the body in order to perform theater. And then she's gone on to be one of the people super involved in running the theater. She's a little self-deprecating. She talks a little bit about how uh, she doesn't do the creative side of running the theater. She does the treasury part. And I would argue that that is just like making sure you have your medical tests done. <laughs> that, that if a volunteer group is not financially stable, then it doesn't exist. So it is very important what she does. No Drama Theater was created to fill the gap for adults in theater from between the kids' theater, which lots of kids were involved in, and the kind of adult theater where you have to audition and 
it's you know very serious and and involves a big commitment. No drama is trying to make sure that people just have that element of play in their lives. Although for the volunteers, it can be pretty all-encompassing. There are any number of members because they are so welcoming and so inclusive. That's how I found Elaine, actually, was I showed up at one of their events, one of their workshop events, and had a really wonderful time. And it was, again, it was physical theater. It was physical play. It was so much fun. And they built that kind of fluctuation, that kind of agility into the culture of no drama, that the group is always fluid, but everyone is facing the same direction. The group is always fluid, but the purpose is always the same, which is there's you know, there's no wrong thing. Anybody can do drama. Everybody's invited whether they just want to start out, whether whether they've been coming forever. And the people that all volunteer there all live this ethic. They live this this mission, which is one of the things they do just off the bat is make sure that everybody has a chat, makes sure that everyone knows that they can test the waters, they can be just as involved as they want to be, and that the point is that embodied theater, yes, but the community in order to do it. So then we got on to talking about community and Elaine talked about how there is a community aspect to both of the things she does, a building community aspect. She talked about the community aspect of her job, that being a civil servant actually means to serve for the civic good. So there's community thinking in that, which is a lot, which is quite nice. Again, it's very much in the head in the mind to do like the, the trying to make sure that everything is beneficial for the larger community, but she does do a certain amount of activity and outreach so that people understand how to comply, but so that people's ideas about compliance with water regulations can be accommodated with what they need to do. And then drama is a social thing. It gets, and it gets people out of their shell and it's a good way to make friends in the city. This week's book review is the book Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Richard Thaler is an economist and won the Nobel Prize last year for this book. And I picked it up off the shelf as an impulse buy just because I thought, now that's the kind of approach to habit change and to change dynamics that I could use. Anything that's not a radical, full, everything has to go, but rather just little pushes, but in the right places help with things like bad habits. How do you change a bad habit? Everybody knows that everybody says they're going to exercise more and they don't. Everybody knows that everybody's going to do their New Year's resolutions. And we all know that they don't. It's barely February and everyone's New Year's resolutions are out the door. So change still happens. So how does it happen? And nudge is all about how our brains work and the effect on our habits and the effect on our, uh, the effect on our behaviors. And I actually saw Cass Sunstein speak last year at uh, Trinity College in Dublin. And it was very funny because he started out with a Samuel Beckett talk. Nudge was not based on Samuel Beckett, but Samuel Beckett is based on the concepts of nudge. And there's a quote from Waiting for Godot where 
the character, one character says, shall we go? Second character says, yes, let's go. And the stage directions say they do not move. And that's what Nudge is addressing. So some of the observations about how our brains work in Nudge are four major biases. And a bias is a departure from rationality. And because we depart from rationality through our biases, there are personal, social, and legal problems that stem from that. So bias number one is that human beings prefer to be inert and inactive. The classic philosophy proposition is that we sit around calculating problems and make rational decisions and act on those rational decisions. And it's been taught that way for a long time. It's become a creed. It's become almost a poem. And yet we don't actually behave that way. We think we behave that way. We wish we behave that way. We talk as though we behave that way. In fact, a lot of times what we do is we talk as if we behave that way and no one else does, but in fact, observably, we don't. We conserve our energy. And in that way, often we, we tend toward being inert and inactive. The second bias is present bias. So in the same way that dogs only think of the present, our own minds are very heavily weighted to the present. So today matters. Tomorrow kind of matters, but the future is a fantasy. Neurologically, our future self is a total stranger. And we play this out in our health and economic choices all the time. The third bias is called optimistic bias, and that is that human beings are unrealistically optimistic. 94% of college professors think they're better than average. Most drivers think they're better than average. There may be an evolutionary advantage to this. And then the fourth of the biases is the availability bias. People do assess probabilities. So they ask themselves, can I think of another instance of this thing that's before me? And that's the kind of thing we talked about earlier about tethering new knowledge to something that gives you context, that's something you already know, some experience you have that plays into this availability bias. But unfortunately, it can get out of hand very easily in a complex world. So we depend on what's cognitively available which means that my sister's friend had this thing happen, or I've seen this other thing before, meaning I can then jump to conclusions that this kind of thing is common because it happens, and it can lead to two extremes. It can lead to hysteria, but it can also lead to complacency, and we feel like there's nothing we can do, we've seen it before. So the availability bias can be incredibly pernicious. It can be damaging. The second piece of nudge are these default rules. He, uh, Cass Sunstein had an example about parents not really staying on top of kids' educational progress, even though parents staying on top of kids' educational progress helps a kid's learning outcome. It helps them be more successful in school. They've developed apps for this, and the use of the app is found to be helpful. So there was a study where parents were asked if they wanted to use the app, and there was only a 1% or 2% sign-up. But then they made the app easier to sign up, and it went up to 8%. That's fine. 
Then the researchers changed the default rule so that parents were signed up but had to opt out. And at that point, over 90% of people not only signed up but used it as well once it was there. So forecasts of the default rules phenomenon are terrible and they end up having ramifications in law and policy. So if you present something new to people, they often simply ignore it. They've got too much cognitively going on. But if you default opt in and allow them to opt out, suddenly there is not just compliance, but actual buy-in and activity. Taking that off people's plates, that choice off people's plates. If it really is important to them, they will opt out. Signing up for school lunches is also something that's been studied for the biases and the default rules, which is that parents often don't sign their kids up for school lunches. It's one more thing to have to do. There's a present bias and there's inertia. But when you automate that kids are eligible, 11 million kids get fed. Default rules are really, really interesting and worth mindful consideration. They're not always successful, and they so they work and then they don't work. So a good example is when you change a thermostat down one degree, it was really, really successful. But turning it down two degrees led people to go to the thermostat and crank it up. So default rules will stick unless they make people too cold. The cool thing about default rules is that they work with inertia. So Sunstein and Thaler came up with a heuristic, uh, which was a word I hadn't, I was unfamiliar with. And a heuristic is a rule of thumb. The rule of thumb and nudge was, yeah, whatever, which is that people will stick with the status quo if they can. That is, that has an informational signal in it. Another interesting piece about how people are affected by nudging and the default rules in particular is loss aversion. And so that can be a useful thing to be aware of when you're creating behavior change. And that's FOMO. People dislike losing something more than the corresponding gain. So I love this exercise. Half the room has to put five dollars or five euro in a tin at the front of the class And that will be given to the people in the other half of the room. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. And especially if you ever talk to economists, the amount of money in the room is still the same. Half number two is like, great, but not super excited. I mean, they each get five bucks. So the effect on them is not in fact that large. But the half, the first half that had to give up the $5 is really, really annoyed. And the effect on them is large. So a loss for the status quo is more socially damaging than the gain. So then ask yourself, what's the loss? What's the gain? That is really, really interesting when you're trying to talk about power sharing, when you're trying to talk about why people react so strongly to something that really in the end is not a big deal and didn't ultimately take anything away from them. Looking at behavioral issues, looking at 
anger and rage and and social negativity from that point of view gets very, very interesting. The third element in Nudge is the asymmetrical update. I'm familiar with that concept because it comes up in How Emotions Are Made, which is the first book that I reviewed in the review podcast. And what it means is that your mind doesn't catch up to changes quickly. So a really fun exercise that Cass Sunstein spoke of was to rate yourself one to 10 how good looking you are. Most people are, don't say they're tens. Most people say they're somewhere in the middle. And now you're told that an impartial judge has ranked you two points higher. So most people then increase their ranking to agree. But if the judge says you're two points lower, most people don't change their ranking, preferring not to think that we're less good looking, but that the judges are blind. And that can lead to things like the likelihood of diabetes, the likelihood of an elevator breaking, the likelihood of our own calculation being incorrect. So climate change is one of the things that gets affected by this availability bias. People who already think that we're doomed hear bad news about the climate and believe it, but they don't believe good news. They feel like it's not as credible. And the flip side for people who believe that it's getting better, they believe the news, the good news, and don't believe the bad news. Everything depends on motivation and belief affects desires and desires affect beliefs. So either you identify your conviction that you're right and affirm it, or maybe the motivation doesn't matter. Maybe where you start is where you tend to end up and you think other information is trying to trick you. It's very predictable in a small number of people. And the correlation appears to be depression, that the more depressed you are, the less adaptable you are in that state. So it's very interesting with how our brains move. Another really interesting effect on your cognitive processes, your cognitive, like how well you're able to address your own biases is scarcity because it turns out that being hungry, busy, poor, or lonely leads to cognitive scarcity. So if you, if someone is in that state and you give them math problems or IQ tests, they perform as well as people who are not in that state. But if you give someone in that state a problem to solve that pings that scarcity, so if you give a, a person in that state, like a, a person who's without money, if you give them a problem to solve about the car needing $1,500 of work and how are you going to get to your job, how are you going to get the kids to school, what are you going to do about groceries, suddenly they do really, really badly on math problems and IQ tests. So what we think is fixed is not at all fixed. What we think is fixed is very much affected by the context and the conditions of the individual, which I just find really fascinating. And then he talked a bit about what are the ethics of opt-in? Is an organ, for example, a gift And do you rob the sense of that gift if you simply have everybody always signed in? On the other hand, if everyone's signed in, you have organs available for for people that need them, which has to be a good thing. So in the end, that default piece to say, well, everybody's opt-in unless they want to opt-out ends up being an ethical 
dilemma and, and and to understand that it's imperfect as a solution. You have to sit with it. You have to make decisions about what has the greater weight. But you can adjust. You can adjust opting in with a number of variations. You can have a mandatory choice. What what do you want? Yes or no. And you could have preemptive, yes, no, or I don't want to answer. And policymaking could be made a lot better with understanding of this. And in fact, uh, the UK, United Kingdom government now uses nudge in a lot of their civic decisions and in a lot of their civic policies. Okay, and lastly, what I like to do when I'm doing my review review is talk a little bit about what tabs I have open. And I did a little bit of a pre-review. I have so many tabs open. At any given time, I have so many tabs open. And what they are this time around are a lot about the practice of writing, because I'm writing a book. They reflect actually some anxieties I have about, should I be also writing some blog posts? I feel like I should. My word counter is open, but also a lot of stuff about how to promote the writing that you do. When I'm anxious, I try to learn more about something, which is both a noble thing to do. It's both it's both a good thing to do, but it can also be very paralyzing because I get into these sort of states of thinking that if only I learned everything I would be able to make something successful. So it, it's a way to talk about those biases. It's a way to remain inert. I also have up some stuff about getting paid for writing because I uh, figure if I'm writing anyway, then that'll be helpful. And let's see what else I've got up. I've got some Amazon tabs up with some books on them. LinkedIn, I have that open. What else do I have open? Oh, I have, because my book is about the nature of work, I have a lot of things open on how to make your workplace a better place. Uh, a couple of things I have, I, I'm thinking they're sort of supposed to teach you how to how to improve your writing and things like that, or how to improve your selling of your writing, and I'm not entirely sure that they are legit, so I have to get rid of some of those. And lastly, I've always kind of had this idea that I'd really like to work for public broadcasting. So I have about six job openings open on public broadcasting to see if I'm interested in any of those. Oh, and then I also had an idea for a very silly book that I wanted to write, and I'm not sure who would publish it. So I have a bunch of research open on who might publish my silly book, which is short. And when it comes out, I'll tell you more about it. But um, I have to write my nonprofit book first. And I have a tendency toward ADD. And it's never been clear to me, not that it matters now, whether that is an organic tendency I had or whether it's because I had a hyper scheduling mother. My mother had every waking hour of my day scheduled for lessons and practice and all sorts of various things, which is cool in that I had a lot of opportunities to do stuff, but a bummer in that I didn't have a lot of opportunity to get really good at stuff and I had to constantly either multitask or task switch. So 
I'm learning to try to focus. And one of the ways to focus is to just sit in Italy where I don't understand the language for two months and write this book. I'll talk to you next week with my next guest and that'll be fun. See you then. Bye. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, at 9 to Thrive, and Facebook, at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening.